Dr. Paul Sadamore is a humanities professor at the University of Pennsylvania. He specializes in 19th and 20th century British literature with particular interest in the novel, law, trauma, visual culture, sound studies, and the environment. He served as president of the Modernist Studies Committee and holds a position in the International James Joyce Foundation. And it is his interest and his expertise in Joyce that first put me in touch with him. Having recently attempted to read through Joyce on my own, I thought it best to consult an expert. Without further introduction, I give you Dr. Paul Seymour. That is quite the bookshelf. Is that all for show? <laughs> yeah, it's just a, it's a piece of cardboard. Yeah, <laughs> it's very convincing. 2D, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, where are you, where are you joining from? Uh, I live here in Philadelphia in the Fairmount neighborhood. Oh, cool. Uh, and I'm nice. just in my, in my row house while the thunder masses above I know the city. Uh, I usually don't care whether or not it's raining, but uh, I hope the thunder holds off for us. Well, if it, if it breaks the heat, you know, I think it'd be worth it. Yeah, and, you know, Joyce will ruin the audio and break the jo heat. Joyce was terrified of thunder, so you know, there's and yet also includes it in his work. Um, yeah, really at really key moments, so it's maybe it's kind of fitting. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, I'm thinking all about that. My mind's going crazy with the, the whole Thursday, Thursday thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, cool. Um, why don't you give I'll give you a little interview, whatever or I'm sorry, overview, a little blurb, um, that I can find on on the pens on pens website but maybe if you could just give me a little bit overview of uh what you study what you research what you teach or you know maybe even how you got started in academia what kind of things you were looking into sure uh my name is paul st amore i'm in the english department at university of pennsylvania and i teach 19th century um but mostly 20th century literature these days uh, and have been working, I'd say, principally in the field of modernist studies for the last 15, 20 years. Uh, I focus on the novel. Uh, and my work has gone through phases where I've been really interested in the crossroads between law and literature. So I wrote a book about intellectual property uh, and uh, the literary imagination. Uh, and a handful of years ago, finished a book about modernism and total war. Um, so sort of large scale global warfare that doesn't recognize limits between civilians and combatants uh, and how modernist literature of the interwar period is sort of wrestling with the memory of World War One and um, anticipating an even more um, intensive conflict. Um, so I think about literature and um, trauma, um, literary form, and how to think about um, the capacity of literary form to bear historical traumas or to anticipate uh, future ones. Uh, and these days, I'm thinking more and more about uh, environmental questions, I guess, as a lot of folks are huh. in the humanities and beyond. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thinking about, you know, past and future uh, violence um, and the speed at which violence arrives in respect to um, the non-human world uh, at the hands of the human world. 
So there's a thread of time and temporality that runs through a lot of my teaching and my research. Uh, and uh, Joyce has been a constant, I would say, um, in, <clears throat> in my own um, my own reading and studying and writing. Uh, it was a course on uh, modern British fiction, uh, which I took as a sophomore in college that introduced me to Ulysses and to uh, the work of Joyce's contemporaries. And um, really, I think was the kind of uh, the hinge moment for me in wanting to pursue literary studies uh, as, a, as a vocation. Uh, and I've been very fortunate to be able to do that ever since um, and uh, to, to do it with wonderful colleagues and students and um, in, a, in a field that's very lively. Awesome, there's so much there. Uh, the idea of anticipating conflict, is it cliche to, to have thought about Yeats? I mean, there, it sounded almost like you were really close to, to even referencing slouching towards Bethlehem or something like that. Sure, or yeah, the, the second, second coming. coming. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is, um, there is a way in which the apocalyptic imagination, even when it's thinking about worldly events is very much informed by religious narratives and, and mythological narratives about apocalypse. And so um, the idea of the second coming of a Messiah, which will bring about the sort of the end of history or revelation, um, I think underpins a lot of ostensibly uh, secular thinking about the second coming of an even worse disaster. So for me, that period of the interwar years is kind of pregnant with that expectation of a, of a kind of second coming, um, whether or not the people expecting it are Christian in their orientation or messianic in their orientation. Uh, so yeah, Yeats is certainly in there, although um, I'm you know, much more a, a, a reader and, and teacher of Joyce than I am of, of Yeats. And so, it looks pretty different in Joyce. You know, Joyce is held to have a kind of comic sensibility um, and, rather than a, a, an apocalyptic one, right? Uh, and so sometimes to look for those uh, shadings or to, to hear those sorts of dreadful reverberations in Joyce can feel a little bit like brushing his work against the grain. Um, but I, but I, but I think it's it's very much there. I mean, if you think about the time he lived through and the things that he and his generation witnessed, um, it uh, you know the the comic dimensions of his work, I think you could understand as compensatory for some of the disasters that uh, that the world was was seeing uh, yeah. and, and undergoing. Interesting. So the the class in which you teach about Joyce is that just a class on Ulysses, or is that Joyce generally, or is that a even wider, maybe like a modernism class? What does that class look like? I, I actually teach Joyce in a couple of different classes. So I have a kind of introductory course on modernism in which we read uh, either a couple of Dubliners stories or uh, just a single episode from Ulysses. Uh, and then students who are interested in reading more Joyce can take a, a course that I co-teach uh, with a local artist, Robert Berry, who is a comics um, uh, adapter of Ulysses. He, he's the sort of mastermind behind um, uh, an online, uh, a, a digital uh, comics adaptation of Ulysses called Scene. 
And so we teach together a course on Ulysses in which students read all of Joyce's novel and a lot of criticism um, scholarship on the novel, but then they, instead of writing kind of conventional research papers, analytical papers, they work together um, to do kind of creative critical assignments at the end of the mm -hmm. semester in which they, you know, write an apocryphal episode of Ulysses or, you know, develop some, um, you know, multimedia um, installation or uh, that somehow thematizes or responds to Ulysses in their own kind of creative way. So, um, you know, it's really important in that class for it to be co-taught by somebody who actually does that work, Yeah, you know, um, and can say, like, here's how I solve the, the problem of, you know, trying to put Circe on um, on the page as a comic book, right? yeah, um, and and can help them think through the sort of aesthetic and practical dimensions of adapting or otherwise creatively responding to Joyce. And then I um, I teach Finnegan's Wake in um, either an upper division undergraduate seminar or in a graduate seminar, um, often paired with other experimental works from the latter half of the 20th century, so that we're not just reading Finnegan's Wake, but we're, we're reading work that it influenced or work that was important for Joyce when he was working on the wake or um, um, just um, literary and, and musical work that is in some kind of um, dialogue with, with the wake, whether directly or, or implicitly. Interesting. I did something of a, of a Joyce deep dive um, as, as deep as I could manage on my own. And as I got up to Finnegan's Wake, sort of like world weary after Ulysses, I uh, I started reading some of Skeleton Key, mm -hmm. and then being a huge Campbell fan, mm -hmm. uh, and then I just I just went to Skin of Our Teeth by Thornton Wilder as opposed to sure. <laughs> not that, not that it's a replacement, but I I maybe got like a few pages in and then thought oh, you know what. <laughs> I'll just I'll sit with the ideas for now and maybe not have to say that I read the whole thing. So sure. I admit that I gave up on Finnegan's Wake, but maybe you can <laughs> maybe you could, you could uh, change my mind again. Well, I think with the Wake, as with Ulysses, um, it, it's a lot more rewarding to read it with a group of other people mm. uh, rather than to sit alone, you know, in a single cone of light uh, reading it on your own. I mean, that works for some people, but. Uh, it's uh, particularly with the wake, if you can sit in a room with others, even if it's a virtual room and put your heads together mm -hmm. and also try to loosen your internal sensor so that you can free associate, um, you know, the wake is so much about listening to um, words on a page and being able to hear a lot of different pronunciations, a lot of different languages colliding in those words. And so it helps if you have people who speak a bunch of different languages or who know unusual vocabularies and can sort of pool their resources. And it's just, it's a lot more fun to have that kind of experience of reading as a kind of consensual hallucination. Uh, Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. When it, a solo hallucination was a little was a little intimidating. Sure, yeah. Um, what you brought you to Ulysses first, Kevin? Uh, under what conditions did you first read it yourself? That's a great question. I remember 
I think I had access a few years ago to a bunch of Campbell lectures through Spotify that I would just listen. Some of them were so dense, they were almost like jawbreakers. You had to just kind of like listen to them over and over and over again. And he did this one, I think, where it was kind of like Joyce and Thomas Mann as it relates to Carl Jung. I mean, there was so much going on and I listened to it. The more I listened to it, I would eventually, I remember like telling my girlfriend, like, look, I'm, I'm going to make a decision that like might affect you, but I think I'm going to do like a James Joyce deep dive. It might be six months. <laughs> uh, it might be all I talk about. It, it could pop, it could possibly strain our relationship. Um, I just, <laughs> I just want to warn you about this. And I think it was probably because those Campbell, those Campbell lectures. Um, and then I, I got a, he has like a collection of his lectures on Joyce. And I started with that, then read Dubliners, um, Portrait, those were accessible enough. But there was this one lecture where he talks about sort of the, the epigraph of um, a portrait where it's from metamorphosis are you are you familiar with this little epigraph yeah. and it's a line from Daedalus saying you know he turned his he turned his eyes or something like that to unknown arts mm -hmm. and Campbell has this like really poetic interpretation of how that's a clue for Joyce's entire career um you know it, and obviously that that risks being simplifying but it was it was certainly like this little it was like an inroad for me where if I tried to read those books separately, I'd be like, what the hell's going on? Uh, you know, to say nothing of trying to have a through line, even if I'm, even if he was maybe forcing it. Hmm. And he has this like really cool poetic way of explaining how like, you know, uh, Daedalus sort of, sort of flies from Crete to the mainland. Joyce flies, you know, so to speak from Ireland to the mainland of Europe using his art. And some of that's in the, like in the conflict of portrait. Uh, but what, what's more important for Joyce is that he goes from like this sort of provincial um, sort of symbols and myths of Roman Catholicism to a more general uh, sort of like mainland mythology. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if you think about how Catholic Portrait of the Artist is um, to, to then this sort of like dream world mythology of, of what I've read of Finnegan's Wake. So that, that was sort of my entry point. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it really is, starts with, with Campbell. And so that in a way leads to the question of what is it about Campbell that you find so compelling that Campbell is the door through which you walk into lots of different chambers. Yeah. Uh, uh, you mentioned the skeleton key uh, I'm sure there's a lot more that's been written that's important about Finnegan's Wake since then, but where, where does that sort of stand for you now as far as like guiding people through or having any utility? Well, the wake is so challenging and so full of obscurities and illusions that there isn't I think ever going to be a single volume that will do what the skeleton key sort of purports to do in its title, right? A single volume that can unlock the whole thing. Um, 
but I, I think that it's, it's still valuable. I mean, um, you know, Campbell was young when he wrote it, um, but he had the advantage of priority in the, in, a, in the sense that it was one of the full length, the first full length, if not the first full length studies of Finnegan's Wake. Um, and so, you know, he, given the breadth of his reading, even as a young man, you know, was equipped to shine light into a lot of corners of the book. And, and so I think that that skeleton key, it's also organized in a way that's, I think, quite helpful for first time readers of, of The Wake. Um, uh, I think, you know, it's still, I believe, still in print um, or has been brought back into print. So that tells you something about its ongoing utility. There isn't a sense that it's been superseded because it was naive or something like that, even mm -hmm. though it's, you know, of necessity, an incomplete um, and partial reading. Um, it's still a valuable one. Uh, you know, I think that there's sometimes there is a kind of tension between uh, Campbell's Jungian commitments, let's say, and Joyce's commitment to Vico, um, which, you know, operates a little differently. And so I think that, you know, I wouldn't want to be boxed into a Jungian version of Joyce. I think that, you know, um, that could be that could be flattening, um, but it can also be illuminating, you know, to to a certain extent. And so, uh, so yeah, Campbell continues to have his place for sure. Yeah, he has he has an interesting, and I get the sense that you're onto something there with the uh, an almost dismissive commitment to a Jungian interpretation. A Jungian interpretation, but I find, I bet that's true. Um, but a lot of times in his lectures, at least, he seems really interested in what might have been going around. And I know this is sort of a dangerous and almost this is like people try to avoid this now. But what might have been going on, sort of in the, you know, the milieu around Joyce and some of these ideas that were in the air or happening at the same time. Um, and I think he points to sort of some of Jung's work in the early 1900s starting to sort of emerge at the same time that he's writing Portrait and then Ulysses. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he does the same thing with, um, he does the same thing with some Latin um, translation of the Upanishads mm -hmm. that, that seemingly sneaks into some of Joyce's ideas. Mm -hmm. um, I think he, yeah, he was, re he really seemed interested in like what, what sort of like edgy intellectual ideas were floating around that he might have bumped into, mm -hmm. which, which in my mind would become speculative pretty quickly, but it's still interesting. There's a, there's a famous formulation in the wake that you've probably heard of, um, which is when we were young and easily Freudened. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, I think rightly taken to be a dismissal on Joyce's part of Jung and Freud as, as the sort of, um, you know, as faddish uh, figures of his day. Mm. But I think that, you know, there's also a way in which he recognized that he was kind of competing with both of them insofar as he was trying to render something about, um, you know, what he would, would not have called the unconscious, but what, uh, but I think what we recognize as something like unconscious life and interior life 
in ways that were maybe adjacent to Freud, if not reducible to Freud, hmm. and that he was interested in the commonalities between different cultural uh, mythologies in ways that might put him adjacent to Jung, you know, who had actually written him a fan letter, had written a very uh, uh, positive review of Ulysses, had um, had um, actually seen Joyce's daughter Lucia at one point um, uh, as a patient. Um, so Jung and Joyce actually intersect a little bit um, in, uh, you know, as, as sort of people in the world in a way that Joyce and Freud don't quite. Interesting. Would they also have been, correct me if I'm wrong here, would they have been around Zerk Lake at about the same time? Though it's huge. I don't know enough about Jung's time there. When, what years was he there? Do you remember? No, I don't remember. Yeah, I mean, Joyce is in Zurich basically from 1915 until the end of the war. Okay. Thereabouts. Um, and and I, I'm not aware that they moved in overlapping social circles, um, but, um, but, but they may have been in some geographical proximity. I'm not sure about that. Interesting. Yeah. Um, these might be frustratingly big questions, but I'm curious how you frame Ulysses specifically in the class where you primarily read that, where that's the primary text. How, how do you frame that to students? Do you suggest what the goals might be? Maybe what are what are your public goals or, and what might be your private goals? Um, <laughs> if, uh, if a student forgets your name in 15 years, but but take something out of that class. Do you have an idea of what, what you might want that to be? Um, and I'm, I'm curious, maybe comparing our jobs. I don't take for granted uh, that my kids want to read whatever we're reading. And I sort of determined that it's part of my description to be something of a salesman in that regard. Do you, do you find yourself trying to explain, you know, the purpose or the use of reading this this book because it can be daunting certainly in, in certain episodes the two parts of your question are in an interesting kind of tension for me insofar as one of the things that brings people into a class to read ulysses is its reputation as a difficult book sure right there is you know now that it, the, the book is 100 years old it has been you know maybe displaced to some degree by other more recent difficult books. Um, but I think for most of the existence of Ulysses, that reputation has been a kind of challenge that has attracted certain kinds of readers. You know, some of them who really want to engage deeply with it, others who want to get through it in order to sort of say that they've gotten through it, which is, you know, a perfectly common reason to read a book. Um, uh, and yet, I think one of my very public goals, I'm not sure that I have private goals apart from the public ones when I'm teaching, um, because it's for me really important to just be transparent about you know, what my goals are and where, where, where their edges are too, because I think that classes do need to have, particularly literature classes, need to have a kind of openness with respect to their goals so that they don't foreclose 
things that, that the teacher can't anticipate. Um, but I want to kind of push back a little bit against the ferocious um, reputation that Ulysses has as a book that lots of people own, but nobody reads. Because I, I do think it's very readable. Oh. And I mean, it's, it's, not, um, it's not like falling off a log. You know, it's, we don't want to be um, naive about the challenges that it can present a reader now 100 years later, or re really any reader. But it is also um, a book that's full of life, that uh, has uh, uh, very, some very accessible sections and facets, um, that has very memorable characters, that's full of its sense of place and the sort of historical textures of its setting. It's, it's a very playful book. Um, it's one that I think, you know, it can accommodate a lot of systematized reading, but it's, it doesn't demand it. You know, I think you can, you can read Ulysses with benefit and, um, uh, uh, and real interest without knowing anything about Homer's Odyssey or without knowing much about Catholic theology or Irish history, because there's so much there that even the parts of it that are closed to you because of you know, the limitations of your own knowledge and experience um, uh, don't exhaust what it, what it has to offer. So I guess I, I, you know, I'm happy for people to show up because of that reputation. <laughs> And then what I want them to do is then to actually set it aside and just interact with the text. And I think that the way that Rob Barry and I teach it together as a text for creative people to engage in a kind of creative slash critical dialogue with helps people do that, right? That, that their, their job is not just to analyze it and somehow master it. It's to engage in a kind of dance with it, right? Mm. To, 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 to choreograph a kind of creative pas de deux with the book. Interesting. And to approach it as fellow creative writers, mm. as well as analytical readers. And so that can, that can sort of de-escalate some of the, the, um, the kind of intellectual stakes, which then for me is like, a, is the necessary precondition of its becoming an intellectually engaging book, yeah. right? When you're not all kind of yeah. you know, tightly wound about whether you're gonna get it all. Interesting. I was gonna I was gonna ask that. Do you how how long have you been doing this model with the sort of creative element? And how many years had you been doing or for how long had you been doing um, maybe a more traditional model for lack of a better term? I mean I I taught Ulysses uh, I guess the first time I taught it would have been in the very late nineties. And I guess I taught it for 15 years in a, in a more conventional vein uh, and uh, maybe, maybe 20 years. And, and, and so it's for something like the last seven or eight years that Rob and I have co-taught it in the way that I've described here. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, can, I can also imagine going back to teaching it in a more conventional literary studies way. Um, there are benefits to both approaches. Um, but I think, you know, that we've had such successes 
um, in our class with students getting to know Ulysses in a kind of intimate way because they're responsible to it as fellow creative writers, you know, going back and rereading parts of it so that they can um, produce a screenplay adaptation that adds new material to what's there, but has to really get, get the details correct. Sure. Or because they're doing a side-scrolling platform video game based on it. And so they want to figure out what parts of, you know, what dialogue and what aspects of the environment are going to translate best into that medium. So I guess as a teacher, I'm very interested in encouraging people to reread, not just to read something once in order to then have a conversation about it, but to go back to passages and really get to know them intimately. and. Um, and closely, and a great way to do that again is is to take them back as both analysts and creatives. So yeah, there's there's something so interesting about that agency and ownership that almost lends itself to a depth of analysis that sometimes is is sort of uh, seems off limits, right? Mm -hmm. Or at least, you know, off limits to. Yeah, there's something really interesting that happens. So it's like you're now responsible for creating something in relation to this text or in relation to this thing that seems to invite a depth and a sense of ownership right. where, at least in my experience, the kids will like reread something. And I'm like, wow, they're really, <laughs> they're really taking this personally. Is there something that you, in designing the class, that you know you start to lose? Like, do you necessarily, just for the sake of time, have to sacrifice some of the historical contextualization? What, how do you make those decisions? Um, you know, if you had a, a whole year in which to teach Ulysses, you could of course go more deeply into every aspect of it, right? You could go more deeply into, as you're saying, the historical context, into theology, mythology, into the map of Dublin, <clears throat> excuse me, in 1904 into the publication history of the book and all of the pre-publication materials and drafts and note cards and everything. There's a whole wing of Joyce studies, which is called genetic criticism, which is about the, the genesis of the text and it studies the stages of its composition and revision. Um, so, you know, in our class, we, we touch down a little bit into each of those things in addition to you know feminist criticism and gender criticism and critical race theory as it pertains to Joyce's project and and on and on um, but you know a class that exhaustive could also be kind of exhausting if you're subjecting this one textual object to all of these sort of different optics and I think it actually works better to take students through it to give them a kind of sampling of ways of approaching it, but not to overwhelm them with the wealth of, you know, essentially a hundred years worth of scholarship on this book. And then encourage them to go back to pick those tools up again as suits their own creative and critical projects. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think, in a standard analytical class where you're going to you know, write a research paper, sometimes with a very canonical book like Ulysses uh, or a canonical writer like Joyce or Shakespeare or any of the writers who've been sort of 
thoroughly read and studied for many years, there can be a sense that so much scholarship has been published on these writers that if you're a 19 or 20 year old reading them for the first time, what could you possibly have to add? And of course, I think, you know, any good teacher would say you have an infinite possibility. Um, there's an infinite possibility of new ways for you to approach the work or to bring your own experience to it or your own historical moment to bear on it. But I, th I do think it can be intimidating um, to deal not only with the wealth of the text itself, but the wealth of its critical heritage. Mm -hmm. And so another thing that I like about this kind of creative critical approach is that there is a little bit less that sense of like the weight uh, or burden of the scholarship being the thing that you have to kind of wrestle with because um, you're also trying to breathe a new kind of creative life into the work or its legacy. And that can include pushing back against it creatively uh, and critically. So some of the student projects that um, Rob and I have seen come out of this class are really wrestling with, um, you know, aspects of Joyce's book that haven't aged so well, or that seem to be very much a sort of function of his subject position or his historical moment. And it gives students an opportunity to kind of write back in respect to the text without simply stating in a kind of bald-faced way, you know, this isn't how we should think anymore. Right. right. Um, huh. uh, you know, you can you can administer a kind of corrective gesture to something that you think hasn't, you know, kind of kept up with the norms of the day um, in a more subtle and I think positive way when you're writing a kind of creative and critical response to it. That would, that would be my, my, my instinct. I think based on the, the years of teaching this class. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that approach. It's really impressive. Um, I want to go back to the context of this being read in sort of a modernist class or mm -hmm. class on modernism. Um, you said earlier something along the lines of, you know, there can be a flattening effect to a singular lens when applied to this, to this book. Is there, is there, um, maybe this isn't the right way to ask this question, but is there a risk of saying, well, okay, we're going to read this in a, in a modernism class and we're going to look at all the ways this is a modern text and how it plays with the form. Is something lost there? I, I get the sense. I remember I talked to somebody who was, somebody's like, oh, if you're reading Ulysses, you have to talk to this person. And I, all I wanted to talk about were like the themes and the Thor's day and, you know, the, the clap and all this. Um, and it was like, you know, I got this, conversational lecture about the publication history and I thought oh, isn't that interesting <laughs> you know he's taking a few classes on Joyce and this is what he's you know it doesn't really sound like he's in love with the text anymore uh just that there's this like look what I know about it um does teaching it in a modern modernism class does it run that risk of becoming a little too um academic where this sort, sort of creative lens lends itself to a more some sort of depth? I mean, I, I, I guess I would say that it's a risk of any 
class, sort of irrespective of modernism. I don't think the problem you're describing is a modernism problem. Certainly, I think not. I think it's a it's a pedagogical problem. <laughs> you know, and it's not altogether soluble in the sense that you know no two people are going to come to a text with the same um, the same interests or enthusiasms right. or orientations. And so sometimes other people's um, take on something that you're deeply invested in or curious about can be frustrating just because it's not yours. Sure. Right. Um, I would say, you know, that the modernist frame around Ulysses is certainly not just about its publication history, right? I mean, there's so much to say about uh, modernism as, uh, you know, in some ways anti-academic, right? As um, trying to uh, kind of explode some of the conventions and received wisdoms of um, the literary traditions that modernist writers were, you know, partly coming out of, but partly trying to, um, to wrestle into new shapes or to just leave behind altogether. So I think that the, there's a kind of insurrectionary spirit in a lot of modernist work, which can be very exciting um, and can really revitalize a literary studies classroom. Um, but of course, modernism, as we know better with each year, wasn't just one thing. And, you know, the modernism that, let's say, I was, you know, um, uh, educated in, in my teens and 20s, isn't the modernism that people are learning about nowadays. I mean, we have a much more flexible and populous sense um, of what, what modernism was, what it is. It's a much more contested term. It's not just sort of Ezra Pound and the, the, the men of 1914. Mm -hmm. So I think modernist studies as a field has gone in really exciting directions. Um, and partly, you know, by, by dint of having, you know, shifted its focus away from the giant figures like Joyce and Eliot and Pound and looked at their less well-known contemporaries or at writers who are writing in other parts of the world in relation to their work, you know, sometimes in later periods, sometimes in earlier or uh, earlier periods or alongside them. So, yeah, I mean, it's a long answer to your question, but I think that modernism doesn't in any way have to be a kind of flattening or life-sucking frame to put around Ulysses or, or any work. It's, it's a very interrogative frame. It's a term which is very up for grabs. I mean, people in the field really don't agree mm. about what modernism was and whether it's over even. Right. I mean, there's a kind of fight going on now about whether we're still in a period where modernism is being practiced. You know, uh, is any kind of experimental or form breaking work still modernist or, you know, do we lose something when we refuse to sort of periodize modernism? Is there something really useful about saying it ended around a certain time and whatever came after needs to have a different name because it it is in some ways building on modernism rather than being inside the, the belly of that whale. Um, so yeah, modernism 
is a is a uh, it's a term that generates, I think, a lot of sparks and a lot of questions these days. Rather than, or or, or rather, it should do, <laughs> rather than a lot of sort of prefabricated and deadening um, uh, received narratives about a work. Interesting. Um, I may have just like given you a very pedantic answer though. <laughs> no, no, there's, there's a lot of strings to pull and I'm not sure which one and, uh, that was a good answer. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in this idea of, of modernism being sort of subversive and choice, at least in my reading, seems like very overtly subversive. I mean, immediately even with like the title um, where he's sort of like, you know, this is a clear <laughs> allusion to a, a famous, a classic, right? That I'm now going to sort of flip on its head. Mm -hmm. um, was that in remediate, is that, was that in immediate response to, to something where people, um, was he almost, was he resisting anything that would have been sort of in, I don't know, if not Dublin, then sort of like the literary world of the time that would have made, sort of directed his attention towards the Odyssey in the first place to play with? Or was he just tinkering with, um, with old forms or maybe classics in general? Well, I mean, we can speculate, um, which I think is very useful to do, but often I think scholars begin with what Joyce said about um, his reasons for choosing the Odyssey and specifically for choosing Odysseus as the sort of central figure of this work. And, you know, I think for him, Hamlet is too much of a sun figure, right? He's too much in the sun. He's too sort of stuck in the filial role and a lot of other candidate heroes were still were were, were also sort of too um tethered to a single kind of aspect of human experience whereas for him odysseus was you know uh, a statesman a warrior a strategist a lover um, a husband a father a son he was a kind of all-around figure and also one who uh, I think was uh, for that reason uh, more kind of exportable to a later historical moment, right? Because, you know, I think when we walk through our days, we walk through many roles, right? Yeah. Um, and we understand ourselves in more in a more kind of performative and multifaceted way. And so there was something about that story that and and about that figure that I think seemed really adaptable to a kind of contemporary moment. Um, you know, one could speculate that there's that there's something about the kind of canonical status about Homer's Odyssey that was kind of attempting thing to attack or to compete with. But I, I, I don't know, I, I think it's more a gesture of affection and attachment um, to Homer than it is a, you know, a, a, um, a kind of project organized around dislodging or unseating Homer. 
even though you know it's a uh, Ulysses is is also wrestling with Homer, right? I mean, uh, it's not just a kind of genuflection to Homer um, by any means. And this is you know this is one of the ongoing debates about Ulysses. Um, does it use the mythical substrate as T.S. Eliot claimed to kind of impose order on what Eliot described as the immense panorama of futility and anarchy that is modern history. Uh, or- which, which reminds me of a line doesn't, where I think it's from Portrait where he says, you know, history is a nightmare or something like that. From which I'm trying to awake. Yeah, and there was another reference that reminded me of a line where you said, we walk through many, there's that all in all in all of us line. Right, that's in the library scene in Ulysses. And yeah. and he's talking, you know, around Ham Hamlet as well. Interesting. Right, yeah, and, and about Shakespeare and how Shakespeare had many facets as well and, and put himself in many of his characters. Um, put himself, I think. But just to complete that thought, so Eliot, you know, sees Homer as imposing order on 1904. But I think a lot of readers, maybe most readers these days, don't think that the, the, the power is only flowing in one direction. In other words, that you know, order comes from myth and it organizes contemporaneity. You know, there are things that 1904 does for the ancient Greek world in response. And there's a lot of playfulness that happens when those two layers intersect. And it's not at all clear which one of them has more authority or whether it's even a question of authority ultimately that's, um, that's, that's happening in the, in the kind of interaction between those layers and Ulysses. Yeah, interesting. <clears throat> that's a really cool question. Yeah, in some ways there's sort of, there are these archetypes uh, not to run around with a Jungian hammer, but, but then there are sort of these, um, the folk masks of those archetypes where Circe's no longer a goddess on an island, she's in a brothel. Interesting. Right, yeah. So one of the things Ulysses does by taking these gods and heroes down a few pegs, right, is you could argue is to kind of democratize or, um, or um, you know, de- uh, uh, deauthorize um, mythology and canonicity history, right? Bring bring the gods and heroes down to the level of the everyday, um, even as the you know the sort of relationship between Odysseus and Leopold Bloom, Joyce's protagonist, also endows Bloom with certain kinds of heroic qualities, right? Um, so again the kind of authority and influence are traveling in lots of different directions. Interesting. <clears throat> I wanna go back to that, this idea that Joyce himself said something like um, Hamlet was too neat um, or I forget what your word was, too filial, right? Yeah, I think I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but I think that was the, the gist of it. Uh, and yet you do have this sort of Telemachus, Odysseus, people love to say 
for the Odyssey and maybe for Ulysses that it's, you know, it's a father looking for a son. Mm -hmm. My sense is that it, it can't possibly be that neat. Um, do you, when you're framing your class, is it, is it clear that the story should be more about Bloom or more about Stephen? I mean, what do you do? I, I know obviously that a larger portion of the book is dedicated to Bloom. How do you make out their relationship or how do you invite students to start to wrestle with what their relationship might be or mm -hmm. if that isn't too sloppy of a question? No, no, it's, it's a tough one because, you know, I think particularly if you're, uh, you know, a 19 or 20 year old reader encountering this book for the first time, you know, Stephen is in her, his early 20s yeah. and is a bookish fellow. And, you know, it's, it's very tempting to identify with him. And if you've read A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, you've already met him and you've come to think of him as, as Joyce's kind of surrogate. Uh, and then to have Ulysses pivot away from him in the fourth episode and to kind of turn him into, a, you know, an intermittent character. Um, who more and more is is sort of in Bloom's shadow, at least until you know they rejoin and and kind of become that it, it kind of becomes a, a bromance of sorts <laughs> in in some of the final episodes. Um, it can be disorienting, you know. It's uh, it's as if the writer has had a kind of change of heart, and I think that's one way that students interpret it, right? That Joyce is writing Ulysses um, in his 30s. Um, it's published on his 40th birthday and has begun to lose some interest in Stephen um, insofar as, you know, a 22-year-old is wrestling with a different life stage and different, um, different issues than a husband and father in his 30s. Um, and and yet I, I think it's a mistake to just jettison Stephen, right? And to say, well, he's sort of, Joyce is done with him. Because mm. um, I think that's not, that's not right. And, you know, he does resurface repeatedly after Calypso, which is the first episode where we turn to Bloom. You know, so Stephen is still very much in play. And the relationship between those two characters you know, really is the core of the novel, even though it's a relationship that is kind of oblique. We don't know what its future is um, in what we think is going to be the kind of great homecoming episode, Ithaca, where in Homer, Odysseus and Telemachus are reunited and they, they wreak revenge on the suitors and they take back their home and they are restored to Penelope as a, as a family. You know, Bloom has Stephen home and uh, Stephen sings a, a, an anti-Semitic song to this older man who um, identifies at least some times and in some situations as Jewish. Um, Bloom, I think, quite spectacularly forgives him and offers to put him up for the night. Uh, Stephen declines the invitation. Bloom says, well, if you don't want to stay over tonight, why don't you come back and you know teach my wife proper Italian pronunciation since she's a singer and you know you and I could talk about ideas and I could introduce you to my daughter um, and so 
you know, there is the possibility of a relationship continuing, but I think the likelihood is that it will not, you know, because these two people are really different and, you know, a, a kind of crack has formed in this new relationship as a result of what Stephen has done. So it's, it is kind of a melancholy reunion, you know, and it's a very short-lived one with an uncertain future. But I think if we don't care about Stephen, then we don't really feel the potential and, and also the likely loss of, of, of a potential intimacy there. Um, so Stephen can't just be a kind of finger puppet, you know, uh, callow young man. Mm. You know, he's, he is a traumatized um, figure, you know, who's like wrestling with his guilt at not having prayed at his mother's deathbed and sees her ghost, you know, on this day and is trying to ward it off. So he's fascinating, I think. Interesting. Um, this, this might be where I start to lose you. So excuse the ignorance of, of these speculations, but are there, I think I read, I read this uh, collection of essays by Rene Girard on Shakespeare. And he has in there this really cool essay about Stephen's um, speech or lecture at the library. And there's a line in there in his lecture, Stephen's lecture, that uh, interests me. I think it interests Gerard, but I, I think I ran away with it a little bit at the end, um, where he kind of plays with this uh, Hamlet, Hamnet idea and about Shakespeare sort of being all of his characters in some way, or all of his characters being part of him in some way. Um, where maybe he didn't think these things or say these things or experience these things, but he heard a story where he did and then suddenly it's in, it's in the play. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a line where it's something like the mature, the, the boy in act one is the mature man in act five or, you know, replace those numbers. But I think mm -hmm. it's a reference to Hamlet, but I kind of got fixed on it with this idea that Bloom's name Obviously, he's blooming. And short of resisting this temptation to jettison Stephen, there is this like there is this feeling sometimes where it's like this this boy, the boyishness of Stephen needs to die to something greater, um, or at least yield to something greater. Mm -hmm. And when I think about your synopsis of that homecoming scene, where in the Odyssey they sort of destroy the suitors together. In Ulysses, when he goes to destroy the suitors, which in my interpretation are sort of like Bloom's thoughts of, um, I don't know, being haunted by Molly's infidelity or you know his own moments and sort of his failures, he sort of slays them on his own, right? Those demons or suitors, whatever you want to call them. Is there is there a part where he where the boy has yielded to the man and now Bloom is sort of on his own? So in the Odyssey they're together, but in Ulysses they they're, they're sort of one. Is that is that way too far? 
when I think, yeah. sorry, I think about the climax being like this moment of connection and compassionate sort of dissolution of um, separateness, right? Where suddenly he's worried about Stephen's fears. And Stephen's pretty disturbed by the thunder, but he's really disturbed by Bloom's concern for him. Um, I don't know if that's your the, the climax in your reading, but from there on out, it seems like suddenly there is more, um, there's a primacy granted to that, to that symbolic union. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like the way, and I like the fact that you and I approach Ithaca differently. And it's one of the, for me, really generative things about the way Joyce uses the Homeric parallel in Ulysses, that it's not a kind of a one-to-one -one correspondence. Right? Right. So you were you were characterizing the suitors, the kind of equivalent of the suitors in, um, in Ulysses as Bloom's own fears or anxieties about Molly's infidelities, the many men that have, you know, ogled her or flirted with her. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a very plausible way to think about the suitors, right? That they are, that Ulysses sort of psychologizes them instead of there being actual people who have usurped the home. They are these sort of phantoms in Bloom's own mind um, who are creating a kind of distance between him and his, and his wife or a, or a crisis in their, in their marriage. Um, which, you know, is also being precipitated by the fact that she has, in fact, you know, taken a lover for the first time on this day. Um, I think there's another way to approach Ithaca and to think about the, the things that are usurping home as not just the obstacles in Bloom's marriage or those infidelities um, or... Um, the sort of psychological phantoms that bedevil him, but, but sort of all obstacles to human intimacy um, in a broader sense. So not just in the context of a marriage, but you know, the things that divide him from Stephen, for instance, right? The fact that Stephen, although he is a guest in Bloom's home, you know, does this kind of unprovoked and quite aggressive thing of singing this song, which provokes you know, uh, prompts really mixed feelings in Bloom. Um, and, uh, you know, in, in the Odyssey, the suitors, because they're just people, they're bad people can just be killed, right? It's, there's a very cathartic mass scene of mass violence. It's, it's an incredibly graphic and bloody scene of just slaughter, right? Completely unmitigated slaughter. And what Joyce does by making Ithaca the quietest episode in Ulysses, right, is to ask the question of where is the violence and where is the catharsis happening in this episode, right, which consists of a middle-aged, middle-class man bringing, you know, uh, a, an acquaintance home, you know, taking a little care of him and then sending him on his way, right? Um, and, you know, I think the question of where the violence is and where the usurpation is and whether slaughter occurs or whether something else happens, right? Is this an Ithaca that's more about forgiveness being the thing that makes home safe 
than revenge being the thing that makes home safe? All of those questions for me um, make this book rewarding to teach, right? Because it's not a paint by numbers set of correspondences. So just to come back briefly to your question about whether in some ways Stephen has been superseded by Bloom, I guess I think it's, it's Stephen's presence in Bloom's home that makes Bloom vulnerable and also makes him generous, gives him an opportunity to say in response to somebody who is just drunk, you know, engaged in a kind of drunken act of aggression toward him. I forgive you, I invite you, even if you decline my invitation, you know, I'll look for another way to continue our association because I see you as somebody, someone in need whom I can help and also as someone who might bring welcome things into my life. Um, so again, I, I don't think that there's a kind of handing of the baton from Stephen the son to Bloom the father. I really do think it's, you know, it is, you know, if we think about both Bloom and Stephen as having aspects of Joyce, right? It's it's a you could think of it as a kind of time travel novel in which, you know, the past version of yourself is able to meet and encounter and offend and mm. and also inspire the present version of yourself, you know, and gives you an opportunity to realize that we're not self-identical, right? We don't correspond with ourselves at different moments in our lives. Um, that those differences of role really are, are significant ones, even as we're detectably the same person throughout the thread of a life. Fascinating. What do you do with the biographical um, sort of snippets that might be interesting to consider in, in a thematic interpretation of the book, for example, um, you said that just now that, and I agree, there are elements of Joyce uh, in both characters, or at least that, that's what I assume. Yeah. And yet, is it true, I forget where I heard this or read this, that Joyce himself may have actually fallen out of a brothel and have been picked up by a, and sort of dusted off and maybe even protected from, I forget the Royal Guards or whoever. Um, by a middle-aged Jewish man in Dublin? Is that true? I mean, the, the facts of the case are, are pretty shadowy, but yeah, well, Joyce- Considering he was falling out of a brothel to begin with. Uh, you know, Ulysses had its origin as a possible Dubliner story. So he was thinking mm -hmm. about it, I think as early as 1907. And, and it seems to have had its origin autobiographically and the fact that as you say a Dubliner named Alfred Hunter um, may have taken Joyce in and or protected him from uh, you know the accounts vary was it you know was it the cops was it someone with whom you know a, a drunk person who wanted to get into fisticuffs with Joyce anyway this older man did him a kindness and Joyce I think, if I'm remembering correctly, believed Hunter to have been Jewish, but in fact he was not. You know, so that that Jewishness was a kind of like discursive one. Um, but 
there is a sense that Joyce remembered the kindness of this older man to him as a young person at a moment of, you know, kind of poor judgment and trouble in his own life. You know, a time when a stranger basically like looked out for him and, and sort of plucked him up and dusted him off and mm -hmm. sent him on his way. And I do think that Ulysses, even though it changed, you know, from a short story in Joyce's conception to this kind of modern epic, right, um, does have that kind of core of wanting to acknowledge and memorialize uh, an act of hospitality and generosity, you know, on the part of this older man to a, a younger, a younger man who is a kind of avatar of the self of, of, the, of the writer. Um, and, you know, I've been referring to this anti-Semitic song that Stephen sings to Joyce. Um, it's interesting that uh, the, the one place where we see Joyce's handwriting in Ulysses is where we encounter the lyrics to that song, which are written out um, in Joyce's hand mm -hmm. with musical notation too. And, you know, I don't think this is something one could prove, but it does seem significant to me that the author's handwriting is there on the page at a moment when a kind of young version of himself is committing this sort of egregious violation of hospitality. And it does suggest to me, again, I can't prove it, that Joyce is kind of acknowledging having done something like this to somebody who was doing him a kindness and wanting to acknowledge both that he did it and that the response to it was a generous one. Uh, and so for me, that Ithaca episode really is the kind of affective core of the book because it is so much about hospitality, right? Um, Stephen and Bloom are referred to as the, the guest and the host respectively, as if those roles were like, almost like pronouns. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're, they're constructed in this relation of hospitality, which as we know is, you know, one of the cardinal um, uh, virtues isn't quite the right word, but a kind of mandates or requirements, xenia, um, uh, a, a hospitality towards strangers in the ancient world. And, you know, the question of like, what does hospitality even mean in an occupied colonial city, right? Is a very thorny one. Um, and yet here it is in this episode, you know, hospitality from one person to another, uh, an older man to a younger man, in certain ways, an older version of the self to a younger version of the self, um, uh, a Jew to a Christian. Um, it's, uh, it's an incredibly complex and to me, very moving scene, which is not about reoccupying the home and reestablishing your sovereignty over it. It's about willing, being willing to risk being unhoused in your own home, right? Being willing to risk losing everything because you have offered hospitality to someone you don't know very well. Uh, and somebody who repays you pretty ill as Stephen does to Bloom. Um, uh, but, you know, again, like that scene lasts in a way that for me, it would not if they had just kind of come together and sealed their bromance with a, you know, an agreement to, I don't know, have a drink every every Thursday down the pub. You know, the the kind of fragility 
of their understanding and the cracks that are already showing in it, the fact that it may already be violated and maybe over is the thing that moves me about it. Yeah, interesting. Fascinating. I, out of respect for your time, I have two um, seemingly very disparate questions. Sure. Not that any of them have, have really been <laughs> uh, perfectly congruent. So do, do you have a favorite, um, do you have a favorite image um, and at the risk of leading you do, or a sort of favorite image is metaphor or favorite metaphor that like when you read or you reteach, you're like, wow, like it fascinates you every time. Um, maybe to give you an example, there's like a scene where he reaches for a leaflet and he thinks it says his name, but then it's sort of like the body of Christ or blood of Christ or something. And he kind of blue, no, blood of the lamb. Blood of the lamb. Is that it? Yeah. And then the seagulls like dip for it because I think, and then they immediately sort of like pull away and he sort of thinks, oh, is that funny? Like if I throw a piece of bread, they, they crash right after it, but they know there's no substance there. Mm. And uh, there's like something like this really frustrated Catholic in Joyce where he seemingly, he, he doesn't want to push it too far away, but it's, he's always, he's like, he's always just sort of holding it and shaking it <laughs> um, or at least shaking the way it's, it manifests itself in Dublin around him. Um, that, and I love the sort of like that, that older woman who, uh, maybe the milk lady or the mm -hmm. butter lady, the milk lady, the milk woman. Yeah. And yeah, she's sort of like, there's like this wasteland thing going on there. Um, that's fascinating to me. And I don't know enough about Irish history to, to really appreciate it, but I'm wondering if there are similar metaphors that you find yourself every time, like wishing maybe you had more time in class to talk about, for example. <laughs> wow. It's, it's hard to pick a favorite. Um, but I think just because we've been talking about the Ithaca episode, which is the penultimate episode in the book, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm put in mind of one of the most famous lines in that episode. Um, and the, and it stands out from the episode because it's a moment of kind of rare lyricism in an episode that is very clinical in its language. You know, it's Joyce wrote it in a, what he called a kind of catechetical style yeah. right in a question and answer style yeah with a lot of scientific vocabulary lots of numbers and calculations and you know if you're lost if you don't have a good dictionary with you um but Stephen and Bloom after the scene that I've been talking about where Stephen sings the ballad of um Harry Hughes um and declines Bloom's offer of invitation they go out into the backyard of Bloom's house to urinate um, and then to bid farewell. And as they're standing there peeing, they look up into the night sky and what they see is a heaven tree of stars hung with humid night blue fruit. Mm. And, you know, that line just on its own is, you know, has all sorts of euphony, you know, it's just, it's a beautiful line, but when you encounter it in this kind of clinical field of language, and there's just this one moment of a kind of juicy lyricism and, mm -hmm. and figurative language 
it just it feels like a kind of gift or almost a like a, a manifestation of grace mm. um and you you do get the sense that for all of the loss that both of these characters have suffered right bloom having lost a son in infancy fearing that his marriage is on the rocks and and may not survive his daughter has kind of grown up and is leaving his sphere of influence stephen having lost his mother being in this kind of free fall not having really found his way with his writing or his teaching um that even the brief connection that they enjoy that evening right which may not have a sequel is a kind of moment of grace you know and that one of the shapes it takes is this sentence you know that mm -hmm. can somehow capture um a, a moment of unlooked for lyricism generosity it's a it's a kind of a windfall moment for a reader right when you're struggling along with all of this vocab and then suddenly there's that radiant sentence um and joyce has you know it has a way of rewarding readers you know in moments like the ones that you were just mentioning you know of moments that are sometimes lyrical sometimes they're just so well observed right <laughs> um bloom observing that seagulls know the difference between a scrap of paper and a and a, and a cake um they're, they're just so right and so they they give us a portrait of a world that we recognize right and um that i that i think it's it's one of the things i was talking earlier about accessible aspects of this book and i think that you know, his capacity to observe a physical world and a social world and, and show, that, show that world to us in ways that we recognize too, so that we realize we're living in the same world that, that Joyce lived in, you know, albeit a hundred years later. Um, those moments of connection are what keep me going when I'm struggling with other parts of the book. And I, I think it's true for first time readers as well. Was it true for you? Yeah, there are certainly kept you going. There were certainly these payoffs. I, I benefited from having sort of a thematic guide with Campbell, mm -hmm. but then, and I, the themes were enough. Like honestly, I was sort of like, I was surprised by, you know, of course, a book half its size isn't going to encapsulate everything. But I sort of went into it naively, thinking, you know, this is going to be ten thousand feet, and and. I've got a snapshot of it and and it's going to be about these themes sort of developing through and then suddenly like these you're right like these little turns of phrases they feel like little like rewards or payoffs especially when you're sort of like dragging through certain parts of it um but then other parts are are like um sort of like very they just keep you interestingly occupied like i felt in the cersei chapter the idea that it turned into a play <laughs> became very interesting for me and and the um there was just so much to chew on's not the right word it almost felt like things were like pinging off of me um at like this really for lack of a better word almost like an appropriate rate where hmm. sometimes i felt stretched and then bang i got this reward or payoff and then other times it's like it feels like this little tennis match You're like okay this is um 
and you're right there are moments where I felt like he's really really descriptive and there's other moments where I'm like how did he didn't he's not saying much though <laughs> like somehow he's he's being very descriptive with not a lot of description um and I think of maybe like the first couple of chapters maybe even the first where it has Stephen and his and his two other roommates mm-hmm. Buck Mulligan and I forget the other guy's name Haynes yeah and they're sort of like they're they're sort of like this bachelor slash college dorm banter and they're sort of like also a little heady and playing with these like cool ideas and like doing different like latin versions of masses um i don't know it was it was so it was very intricate um and i never felt punished for like trying to look into something or (laughs) i never felt like it was ever at my expense even like the oxen of the sun chapter where i'm like like i turn the page i'm like oh what the hell (laughs) i guess i gotta look this up um when i did look it up i was like oh that's pretty cool that's pretty cool uh it's like a history of you know obviously this isn't the whole thing but even if it were just a history of of the english language um sort of dragged all the way back that itself would be cool but then that it also has like a thematic overlay about you know procreation or regeneration i don't know it's fascinating um, I agree. I mean, I, 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 you know, there are writers who are difficult for the sake of, you know, subordinating a reader, you know, make, <laughs> making you kind of pledge fealty. And, and, um, and, you know, there may be some of that in Ulysses. I mean, it's a, it's a book that's interested in S&M, you know, especially in the Circe episode, and you could venture that the relationship between the reader and the text sometimes is a kind of SM relationship, right? Um, But I think for the most part, this is a book that, you know, it's a book whose difficulty is in the service of something other than just difficulty or or genuflection to, to a great writer. You know, there are always, there's always a point to, um, the opacity of this book or to the kind of stunt pilotry or experiments at the level of form you know they're not just kind of empty exercises you don't feel that your time is being wasted you know you're you're being asked to go on a really strenuous walk but there's always a vista you know there's always something to see when you get to the summit it may be partly enshrouded in fog (laughs) but it's there and you and you glimpse enough of it to think i'm glad i did this yeah and and you made me think that there there are these images where they're sometimes even if they were just the images they would be cool enough them sort of sitting up in the tower sort of spitting their seeds but then you know there's been a hundred years of analysis some of that starts to lend itself really beautifully it's like okay cool there's this awesome image but then there's there's also a a few really cool ways to think about it and if he were thinking one or any of them that would be cool enough where it's not just a really cool scene yeah interesting Uh, maybe to close out 
there, there's at the risk of contradicting myself there while there are payoffs there there's a lot of ambiguity and i think i heard famously that that joy said something along the lines of like you know people will be mulling this over for hundreds of years or something um i think the line is something to the effect of i've put enough puzzles into it to keep the college professors busy for the next hundred years <laughs> that's even better <laughs> does part of is does part of you resent that a <laughs> hundred years later being a college professor no it doesn't i mean it's it's obviously a prov a provocation that line yeah. um it's both a provocation to you know stick around and try to solve those puzzles but also it is a, a bit of a kind of thumbing of the nose at the institutionalization of literature you know and of readers who think that a book is a puzzle that's soluble you know um so i mean i i think that that's i think that that line i i think it's very funny yeah it's also pretty canny in the sense that, you know, Joyce, I think, realized that Ulysses was not going to be important because it would be a bestseller, you know. Um, it was going to be important because it would, you know, its afterlife would be in, in institutions. You know, he was, not, he was, I think, a very shrewd thinker about ways that literature can survive. Hmm. And, um, you know, the academy sometimes gets described as a kind of life support system for difficult books that are not popular, but that can be kind of kept alive culturally with the life support system of scholarship and the classroom. Hmm. Um, and that's, I think it's okay for some work to survive under those auspices. And I don't know many Joyceans who um, approach Ulysses as a puzzle to be solved. I think they think of it as a kind of environment to be explored. And, you know, once in a while, someone solves a puzzle and can say, oh, you know, we figured out this obscure illusion or, you know, here's, um, here's something no one has ever seen before that's going on you know, at the level of form. But for me, it's much less about um, the kind of binary of, you know, encrypted, decrypted, or, you know, um, scrambled solved, than it is about um, kind of inviting us again into a space that is difficult and self-contradictory and ambivalent and ambiguous enough to engage us for a long time at different stages of our lives as readers, right? We were, you and I were talking earlier about Stephen and Bloom being different ages and maybe being a kind of, you know, an encounter between a younger and an older version of the same person. Um, but if you read this book more than once, you know, you read it at different life stages necessarily and if you're someone like me who first read it at age 19 and is still reading it in your 50s then you have you know you've never read the same book twice in part because you're a different reader each time you open it and you bring different preoccupations and desires and um, 
attachments and revulsions and all the rest to each reading. And I think the more complex a text is, the more it can accommodate readers in those different sorts of states. And so I think people who come back to this book come back to it in part because it can kind of, it can meet our complexity with its own um, and give us a kind of image of, um, you know, the unfathomable thing that it is to lead a human life and to be a human subject you know, in a, in a changing world, in a changing body, <laughs> and all the rest. That, that, that was a beautiful way to end, but I can't help myself. I have to ask about the, the Macintosh guy. I, I referenced the puzzle quote because I was, I'm interested in all these like ambiguous things. Do you have a theory? Uh, first of all, do you have a theory that you think is, is um, that most people would disagree with you about, <laughs> about any of the certain puzzles? Or uh, if you don't want to go there, do you have a theory about the Macintosh guy? I couldn't really get a sense of what he was doing with that guy at at, at that funeral. And then I think he pops up later. Yeah. So yeah, the, the man in the Macintosh um, is this kind of famous enigma in the book. And he, we never learn his real name, right? But there's a newspaper reporter at this funeral who asks Bloom, you know, uh, do you know the name of the man in the, uh, the uh, and Bloom says Macintosh? And the reporter says, oh, that's his name. And so <laughs> the, the man's coat, you know, is the, is the, uh, the thing that gets misrecognized for his identity. And sure enough, he shows up in the newspaper report as Macintosh. Um, and so to me, it's a joke partly about how, uh, how, um, how error-filled archives are, right? And how a, a, a tiny little accident like that can lead to, um, you know, historical errors about who was present where. So I think partly Joyce is just having fun with that little pun um, or that little mis moment of misrecognition. But but I but I think in some ways like the the having a character in a novel that is otherwise obsessed with identity, right? And that and is uh, we know Joyce wrote it with a copy of the sort of who's who in Dublin, um, the Tom's Guide to Dublin in the year in which the novel is set, 1904. So he was really interested in, in naming actual people and putting them in their correct addresses and their correct jobs. And yet here's this one figure who's kind of under-specified. And I think it has led people to speculate, you know, is it Joyce himself? Is it Hamlet? Is it the ghost of Shakespeare? Is it some other character from Joyce's work? You know, is it Mr. James Duffy from A Painful Case, which is um, uh, uh, one of the short stories in Dubliners, which I, I think is a pretty plausible theory, actually. Um, but I think he's, he's most compelling if he stays an enigma because he teaches us something about fictionality and about the limits of fictionality to sort of specify and um, uh, constrain human identity. So I think he's an interesting exception and chilling because he's an exception, right? I mean, he's, there's something ghostly about him because he doesn't have a fixed address or a fixed identity. You know, he could sort of be a figure for the reader, a, a kind of man out of time. Hmm. Um, and I, I hope that puzzle never gets solved. 
because it's it, it gives me the chills as an unsolved puzzle or as a as a as a kind of area of again under specificity i i hope i hope it remains that way maybe next time i could ask you i could get you to answer your controversial theory <laughs> but uh until then just some logistics i'll sort of mix this on audacity and then it's easiest to send through spotify um i have like eight family members who are really generous and listen to this other than that uh not too many people are going to see it so i'll send it to you through spotify and then um if, if for whatever reason you want me to pull it or take it down or change something, let me know and I'll do that right away. And then once I hear from you, then I'll then I'll push it out a little wider. Okay. Awesome. Great. Well, Paul, th thank you so much. This was awesome. Yeah, it's been fun talking to you, Kevin. And I, I'm glad I got to learn a little bit about your interest in Campbell and how Campbell led you to Joyce. And um, once you once you send me the link to the podcast itself i'll be able to go and listen to some of your other episodes too cool so that'll be awesome that'll be great for me yeah and uh as always if if uh, there's anybody that you're ever talking to uh, any colleagues or anything that you think i might be interested in talking to i i can't help myself from asking questions so please 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 send their send their names along okay awesome thank you paul have a nice have, night yeah have a good night too take care bye-bye cheers